All right. So I was on Facebook, and uh, maybe some of you remember John Swinger, but I was watching um, his uh, latest granddaughter take her very, very first steps, Hannah and Bo's little girl, and um, got me thinking about the way kids learn to walk. I'm convinced that every kid, as they're learning to walk, kind of looks like Frankenstein's monster, you know, like the knees don't bend, and their hands are out here like this, and it's like... Uh, that's what it looks like. They're not very good at it. You know, and then, you know, they usually uh, are looking for things to prop them up, you know, the table, you know, the chair, whatever. Um, but most of the time, and, and the most secure thing is, is the parents' outstretched hands, right? That's what's really going to help them out. If you had kids and you've taught them how to walk, you know, like, you're, you're following, like, right behind them. You know, they think they're free and they're independent and, like, you're literally two inches behind them. They just don't see you. And <laughs> as soon as they start to wobble, you know, you pick them up or if they fall down, you scoop them up and you get them back on their feet and they keep walking again. You know, um, God, our Father wants us to walk well. And he's always willing. And I think he's just like us as normal parents. He's just right there. If he sees you wobbling or if you fall down, he's going to reach down, scoop you up, put you back on your feet so you can walk again. He wants us to step out, you see. He wants us to be all that we were created to be, and He wants us to do everything that He's prepared for us to do that's good. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you heard Craig Blomberg talk to us about unity, and he said that uh, the secret to a healthy church, according to the Bible, is unity. Unity. In other words, people who have no earthly reason to be together becoming community. That's what he talked. People who have no earthly reason to be together become community. It was fantastic. It was a great idea. That was chapter 3. Now, you can put the... Oh, I'm doing the slides. I forgot. Okay. Okay, I almost forget there. <laughs> so now we're in chapter 4, and we're going to talk about the practicals of unity. And I'm calling this sermon, uh, There's an I in Unity. <laughs> um, no I in team, but there certainly is an I in unity. Okay. So what we're going to do is this. I, I, I thought we could all read this out loud together. Just 10 verses. And then uh, we'll go through it bit by bit, okay? So I want you all to read with me out loud, all right? Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, 
binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. However, He has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That is why the Scriptures say, when He ascended to the heights, He led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to His people. Notice that it says He ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. This is the New Living Translation. Uh, I chose it for a number of reasons, but uh, just in case yours uh, on your phone or in your hand doesn't match, you'll know why. All right, so let's just uh, look at this bit by bit. So verse 1. Now, the literal Greek here, instead of uh, leading a life worthy of your calling, what the Greek says is walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk. God wants us to walk in unity. It's an action. And Paul's about to explain what that means. You know, rules really don't motivate ethical behavior very well. I don't know if you were aware of that. If you were a bad kid in grade school like I was, you know, if there were rules, they were there for testing. It's the same in God's kingdom. I think awareness of God does motivate ethical behavior. So the the metaphor walk here kind of gives you a picture of something that is continual, right? It's sustained. It's not frenetic. It's not an aimless wandering. It's not a short-term thing. It's a long-term thing. And I'm not saying that you can accomplish this by yourself, but because God is there behind you, unseen, ready to pick you up and scoop you up as soon as you fall, you can do it. But it's a discipline. You know, kids have to want to learn how to walk. I don't know if you've ever had a toddler who refused, who just likes scooting around on his or her butt or on their knees. Some of them just take a long time to do it, right? It's something you've got to want to do. It's something you've got to practice. So you don't always look like Frankenstein's monster when you're walking across the living room floor. This suggests some kind of discipline. Discipline is not a popular word, but it does. You can't have discipleship without discipline. Same root word. It's about learning. It's about practicing. It's about corrected practice. You know, I used to play the piano when I was in grade school, It didn't matter if I practiced. I could practice the same mistake over and over again until I got really good at the mistake. I needed a teacher to discipline me to teach me how to play the piano the right way. In the same way, God teaches us how to walk in unity. 
Our problem is, is that we've got like this million dollar salvation and sometimes it elicits a five cent response from us. Frankly, too often we can seem unimpressed with the fact that God has done everything in the universe possible to save us. And then we'll say that nobody can actually walk that way anyway. Nobody can do the Christian thing. It's impossible, so might as well not even try. You know, right theology, if you think about things correctly from the Bible, it should lead to right conduct. I found this great, great quote um, this week from Madeline LaEngle, the author of uh, A Wrinkle in Time, who became a Christian. Um, and this is what she said. Freedom comes on the other side of work. If I want to play a Bach fugue, I must practice scales. If I hope for any transcendent experience in prayer, I have to have just done my ordinary everyday prayers, which is the same thing as practicing my scales. I have to write every day. Freedom and discipline, rather than being antithetical, are complementary. Permissiveness, either from others toward you or toward yourself, ends up being restricting and crippling. If you choose to be a writer and a mother, you have to be incredibly disciplined. Otherwise, you won't manage. Discipline does not imprison you. Learning how to walk the way that God wants you to walk is not a restriction. It's actually freeing. You eventually get to learn how to run. And what does God use to motivate us? You know, some people think that God's greatest motivation for us is, you know, a whack. He's going to knock us off our feet with a smack to the back of the head. But that is not what's going on here. Karl Barth summarized it this way. He said, royal princes are treated by their tutors, their educators, not with a stick, but with an appeal to their rank and their standing. The Apostle Paul is going to appeal to our identity in Christ to get us to practice walking in unity. Remember who you are. Remember to whom you belong is basically what he's going to say. And Paul says, in the meantime, don't forget, I'm a prisoner and I'm doing this. I want you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God himself. Verse 2. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourself together with peace. Now we get to some nitty-gritty. This is the recipe for unity. These are the 
walking orders, the marching orders, if you want to be a church that hangs together. Number one is humility. And humility means that you renounce, you let go of self-centeredness. This word, uh, actually, you can translate it to be completely humble. Completely humble means that you've got to have a lowliness of mind. You cannot think too low of yourself <laughs> if you want to be humble. Impossible. This is as opposed to haughtiness or thinking too highly of yourself. And just because, I mean, honestly, if you know God, then you are in a unique position to understand your lowliness. We regard our strength as lowly because we've come in contact with the omnipotent God. We regard our goodness as no good at all because we've met the all-holy and everlasting one of Israel, the glory of the universe. It's not hard to see yourself as lowly once you've met God. And we don't know much. We understand we don't know much because we are in contact with one who knows everything. He's omniscient. We know just that much. No, 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 no. We know like mile high's worth, but it's compared to affinity, so it doesn't make any difference. The next thing he talks about is gentleness. And in order to have gentleness, you've got to renounce harshness and violence. You've got to renounce harshness and violence. So I've said this before, but you know, ever since I've been married, I understand that there is something wrong with my tone. It doesn't matter what I say. I could say, I could be talking to my wife the way I'm talking to you right now in a sermon, and my tone is bad. Like, I gotta carry on a pitch pipe like I'm in a glee club. And, okay, is that tone okay? How about that tone? Because my tone is a problem. It's harsh. I'm Greek. You know? I'm not yelling. I'm Greek. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I've got to learn gentleness with my wife. We've got to learn gentleness with each other. There are people in this room who have talked to each other with the wrong tone. <laughs> Not to mention like throwing punches or throwing things across the room. Okay, the same things that I am learning in my marriage, guess what? God has provided for all of us to learn within the context of the church. We're supposed to be gentle with one another. Like you are with your little toddler who's trying to learn how to walk. It connotes a strength that is under control. God knows that you have strength. He's asking you to control it. He's asking me to control it when we deal with each other. The next uh, word that's practical in terms of unity is patience. The Greek word 
is macrothemia. Macrothemia. Macro meaning large. Themia meaning soul. And so patience is literally in the Greek a largeness of soul. You can handle it. It's big enough to handle whatever comes your way. Another word for patience is long-suffering. You can take it for a long time because your soul is tapped into the infinite crater of the universe and it's big. You can deal with those little annoyances, right? Sometimes it's little annoyances that really get you going about the people you go to church with, right? I don't like the way somebody prays out loud. I remember there was one guy, I was in a charismatic church for a while, and he spoke in tongues all the time during the church service. Drove me crazy. Because he sounded like a lawnmower trying to start up. Like, it's like, I was, start the damn lawnmower. Get going. I was so annoyed. <laughs> He's a perfectly nice guy. Okay, but you... <laughs> You will find, you know, Sister Sandpaper sitting next to you at Scum. Or Brother brother Brillo Pad. I mean, you just will. It happens. You need to have macrothemia, patience with them. A more appropriate translation than patience may be um, putting up with each other. <laughs> I think that works. And in order to have patience, you've got to let go. You've got to renounce the tyranny of your own agenda on someone else's life. You need to bear with one another. Literally hold them up. Put up with their faults and their idiosyncrasies. Knowing, of course, that we have our own. And then love. You know, that's just the cherry on top, right? In order to have love, folks, you've got to renounce your rights. You've got to renounce your rights. Let me give you a, a, a weird definition for love. Love means that sometimes you get taken advantage of by people because you love them. Like... Love's job description is to be taken advantage of. That's what Christians do. Christians are people who get taken advantage of. And that's just... I mean, how do you learn how to walk like that? How do you do that? Sometimes the best I can do, frankly, is, you know, if somebody's saying something I don't like, you know, and I'm really, really, really upset, you know, I can give them the finger while my hands are in my pockets. That's not good enough. Jesus wants me to love them, but at least I'm not flipping the bird to somebody in their face and tell them to go F off. You see, I mean, I'm learning how to walk. If I want to cuss somebody out, I go into the next room and close the door and tell God what I think of them in 
a blue version of tongues. Okay, I'm being honest with you here, okay? I am trying to learn how to walk in unity with people. And there are some Christians, frankly, I cannot imagine spending eternity with. How would that ever be close to being heaven? I don't understand. I've said this before. I mean, spending eternity with Benny Hinn is going to... I just can't imagine. Can't imagine. But you know, I'm trying to learn how to walk in that here. Just by being honest with you is a step in the right direction. Okay. Verse 3. Interesting. It says, make every effort to keep yourself united in the Spirit. I think that's odd. Don't you? It's like it's a presupposing idea. It's like a given in geometry. Paul says, you're already in unity. It's maintenance. God's already given you unity. You've got to maintain it. God's already inaugurated all this in Christ. And He's already brought us in together by the same Spirit. And we get to enjoy the benefits of all that. It's important to realize here that unity is something given by the Spirit. You can't manufacture it on your own. If you try to manufacture unity on your own, it'll end up being plastic. It'll end up being inauthentic. They won't like it. You won't like it. The church will finally split. You know, I happen to be the founding pastor at Scum of the Earth. But here's the weird truth. I don't really belong here. Like, I'm not the kind of guy God created Scum for. Jesse Heilman is that kind of guy. For years, people have said, when they find that I'm pastor of Scum... You're not what I expected. And I say, what were you expecting? Then they describe Jesse. (laughs) I have not always been popular with people with scum for that reason. I've likened pastoring scum to being the captain of a ship full of pirates. You know, they're all rebels. And I don't care if they love Jesus and they like me at first, they come in, pretty soon, I'm the only one to rebel against. I become the lightning rod for all their daddy issues. Go away, come closer. Go away, come closer. Go away, come closer. Jesse has been my biggest supporter in those times when people start speaking against me. And Jesse doesn't even like me sometimes. Because I'm not really anything close to being a punk rocker. I'm the kind of guy punk rockers rail against. But Jesse has always had my back. People were trying to mutiny, right? And make Jesse the new captain. And Jesse would have none of it. 
Isn't that interesting? That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Jesse relying on the Spirit of God within him to do those kinds of things. Verse 4. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. Seven times the Apostle Paul uses the word one. Do you think that was accidental? I don't think so. Seven is a number of completeness in the Scriptures. Seven days of creation. And it's finished, right? Seven times. One, 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 one. Is that seven? Good. More than that, this has got like a threefold structure right in the middle of it. These numbers, right? Seven, three. The first triad. There's one body, one spirit, one hope. The second triad. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then finally, one God and Father of all. It's a Trinitarian structure. It's based on passages like this that Christians worship a trinity. We saw it earlier in the book. I'm just pointing it out now to you. This is one of the reasons in our confessions of faith, in our creeds, we have a trinity. It's another place. It's many places. This is one of them. Christianity is a shared faith. No separate or individual faith exists, nor there's a different salvation. Not only does this happen within the congregation, folks, but it happens between congregations. You know, sometimes we've done more to promote the harmony of our own church than we have the church at large. I've seen people cut down Catholics left and right. They don't usually cut down Greek Orthodox because they don't know what it is. But I'm thinking, if you knew my background, would you be cutting me down too? You probably would. Because Greek Orthodox people are like Catholics who didn't change with Vatican II. Sometimes, I mean, within... The local church, we don't care about harmony. We're discontent with our little cliques. Christians got to maintain the unity of the Spirit because everything we hold of significance, we hold with each other. It's the way it is. One baptism. Can you even say one baptism without bringing up all sorts of questions? Well, what about infant baptism? Well, what about adult believer baptism? Should you get sprinkled or should you get dunked? Can you do it like in a font or you have to be outside and walk in like a lake or something? I mean, who cares? Paul's not speaking about the mode or the timing. He's saying that no other baptism exists except baptism in Christ. That's it. I remember thinking when I came to Christ, well, you know, my infant baptism finally took. 
I was like 40 days old or something. Another Bible number. When I got baptized. And I'm thinking, great, it worked. Thank God for my Greek Orthodox heritage. I'm going to a church. What do they want to do? Rebaptize me. Why? Well, Mike, we think you're a little bit of a rebel. We want to rebaptize you. Maybe that'll do something. This topic of rebaptism really is an issue. And I just want to say if you were baptized as an infant, and as far as you're concerned, it took, and you're cool with Jesus, you don't need to be rebaptized. On the other hand, if you were baptized as an infant and as an adult you're going, I really want to make a public confession to Jesus about following Him, by all means, get baptized. We don't have to agree on the theology of baptism to accept each other. We just don't. It's a minor thing. Let's major in the majors and minor in the minors. Both sides need the freedom to state their convictions without being demeaning to those who disagree. Verse 7. However, He has given each one of us a special gift or grace through the generosity of Christ. That is why the Scriptures say, when He ascended into the heights, He led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to His people. Now, Obviously, each one of us enjoys a share of God's grace. And, and, and the word gift, grace here, actually has a different meaning than maybe we're used to. He's not talking about salvation, about salvific grace, or the gift of being saved. He's probably talking more about to each of us, a ministry has been given through the generosity of Christ. In other words, we've got a gift for, that's ours, but it's meant to be shared with the community. It's for others as well. It's a work to which you've been called. Jesus has taken captive all the powers that bound us in sin has released us from those powers and then given us gifts to be shared. You're a slave bound for the auction block in chains. The chains are broken and you're given a gift. Paul knew that God had given the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. That's part of this too. He knew that that's why the church has got a variety of gifts, because of the Holy Spirit. Verse 9. And there's some controversy about these verses. We'll talk about that. Notice that it says He ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And the same One who descended is the One who ascended higher 
than all the heavens, so that He might fill the entire universe with Himself. Now, <clears throat> the reason that I chose the New Living Translation is because it kind of makes my, uh, my life easier in that it presents it the way I think it actually means. But let me explain the controversy. There's two ways of looking at this. One is that, um, that the one who ascended also descended into Hades because the literal Greek is he descended to the lower regions to the earth. You hear lower regions, you're going, ooh. So when Jesus was on the cross and he died, did he, did he, did he leave this earth, did his spirit go down to Hades where all the saints were kept who had been born before that? And did he preach to them and then lead them up, lead those captives up to heaven? Is that what happened? It's kind of mysterious and cool, you know. And, you know, some people see it that way. I don't. I think it's plainer the other way around, that the one who ascended is that the one who earlier descended and became a little tiny baby at Bethlehem. Endured humiliation on the cross, died, was buried, and then rose again on the third day, and then ascended on Pentecost. That, that's what I think. You decide for yourself. Weird saying number two, that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Now, when I read that, I think spatially, right? I think somehow like Jesus is just blowing up. And he gets bigger and bigger until he, feel, he fills the entire universe. It's expanding at a rate of thousands of light years per second or whatever, you know? I don't think the Apostle Paul meant it spatially. I think what he was trying to say was that Literally, in order that He may fill all things. That's the Greek. In order that He may fill all things. It's about Christ's authority. And uh, the fact that He encompasses all things. And He puts them in their proper role, their proper place. Nothing is outside His jurisdiction. Everything becomes the sphere of Jesus' kingdom. When he ascends, he brings wholeness to the entire universe. Everything is held together in him. That's what I think it means. Now, let's go to some practicals. The emphasis of this letter is unity. And the problem is is that we value differences more than we value unity or people. That's part of the problem. Jesus has already given us unity, but our fleshly natures still value differences more than being one. You know, 
There are Christians who are really fearful of some kind of ecumenical world structure. You know, oh my God, I can't be united with the Catholics and, and the Pentecostals and the Charismatics and, you know, the Baptists and the Anglican. I can't, I just can't see that happening. That would be terrible. People want there to be insiders and outsiders, right? We like that. Dave gave a sermon just a few weeks ago about how he's an outsider. And the problem is is to take your identity in the wrong way, being an outsider. Many groups have insiders and outsiders. We talk about unity and community here at SCUM, but we don't really have it all together the way that God intends because some people think we have insiders at SCUM. We're the church for the left out. And they're saying, oh, there's an inside group. They sit in a certain place. They dress in a certain way. And I'm not part of that group because I don't do this. So I don't have that hobby. I wear pink. That's what they think. Remember that community is not the source of its own existence. Christ is. He is the unity of the church. The church only exists in Jesus. It doesn't matter what color you like to wear. It doesn't matter what your hobbies are. It doesn't matter what music you listen to. I don't listen to punk rock. I faked it for 18 years. (laughs) You see, Christ holds the church together. There was a phrase, it'll be lost on most of you, but I thought it was fantastic. One of the commentators said, Christology is ecclesiology. For you seminary types, that's, that's gold. Christology is ecclesiology. Practicals of unity, humility, gentleness, patience, love are us. That's who we are. That's who you are. You were meant to walk that way. You were meant to walk in humility. You were meant to walk in gentleness. You were meant to walk in patience. You were meant to walk in love. It is your default spiritually. It's always pulling you in that direction. You're like the toddler who wants to get up and try again and again and again when you fall on your face, when your forehead hits the corner of the stupid coffee table and you got to go to the emergency room because it's gushing blood. It doesn't matter. You're going to get up and you're going to try it again until your last breath. That's who you are. You were made for unity, just like a baby was made to walk. Unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and in both things love. Rupertus Meldenius, 
1627, he said that. Just in the midst of the Thirty Years' War, where Christians are killing each other, he said that. He said that when Christians were killing each other. It's so true. Major in the majors and minor in the minors. And then in both things love. So what are the minors of the faith? I already talked about baptism. How we do communion is another one. There's all sorts of things that are minor theologically. The majors are Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, lived for us, died for us, was buried for us, rose again for us, and is seated at the right hand of the Father forever for us. That's a major thing. If a church... The denomination starts to wander away from the centrality of Jesus, the Lordship of Christ. No unity there, folks. Okay. Isolation prevents growth. The practicals of unity. You can't be a mature Christian by yourself. For you can't get everything you need for a life of faith just on your own. God made you to live in community with others. Sometimes there's periods of time where you're not, you know. You're persecuted for your faith. You're in solitary confinement. It's a war. Whatever. But normally, by and large, in most every other scenario... You are meant to live in community. You can't not be part of a church. You can't be a mature Christian without it. This goes for churches as well as for individuals. As a matter of fact, I I think the church in the U.S. will be a lot healthier if we were somehow connected better. I think there would be healthier churches theologically, in terms of social justice, in terms of everything. You know, some evangelicals fear discussion, in particular with the Catholic Church, And I want to say, I'll go on record as saying, I think evangelicals of today have more in common with Catholics than they do with many mainline Protestant denominations. Why? Because they don't major in the majors. Because the lordship of Christ is up for grabs. That's me. And last, be a unity thermostat, not a unity thermometer in the church. Be a unity thermostat, not a unity thermometer in the church. Like, you guys know what a thermometer does, right? It just tells you the temperature in a room or outside. 
But a thermostat will tell you not only what the temperature is, but it adjusts the temperature in the room, right? So if it's too cold, you take the thermostat, you move it up, and the temperature goes up. And if it's too cold, or if it's too hot, you turn it down, the temperature goes down. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to go outside of Scum's normal, comfortable sermon illustrations and use a sports ball story. All right? All right. Baseball in this particular case. Back in 1945, the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers reunited, uh, recruited, recruited Jackie Robinson to play for them. Now, people don't know, perhaps, if you're not familiar with baseball, it may not seem all that important, but back then it was really important because Jackie Robinson was a black man, and black men were not allowed to play ball with white men. So the owner of the Dodgers told Robinson he intended to change baseball and break the racial barrier. But Robinson would have to expect to be mistreated, insulted, he would have to endure potential death threats, and he would not be allowed to fight back or defend himself. Every town the Dodgers traveled to, when Robinson came up to bat, he had to dodge fastballs pitched at his head. And when he played second base, runners would try to cut him with their spikes as they slid into that base. The crowds would boo him and insult him and call him all kinds of nasty things. And then, in 1958, they played in Boston during his second year with the Dodgers, and the insults and taunts had become almost unbearable. It was at that point the shortstop, a white southern boy named Pee Wee Reese, called timeout and walked over to Robinson and put his arm around him. In that simple gesture, Pee Wee Reese was telling the crowd, this is my friend, this is my teammate, we stand in unity, I stand with him. From that point on, the crowd settled down, and they backed off on their insults. In an interview with Robinson in the July 1952 issue of Focus magazine, he was asked, the question about the turning points in his experience as a Dodger. And Jackie Robinson replied, We were in Boston in 1948, and the Braves were giving it to Reese for playing shortstop alongside of me. Pee Wee came out over from shortstop, put his arm around my shoulders as if he had something to say. Actually, he just wanted to show where he stood, and the jeers subsided. Robinson repeated the same story in a February 1955 issue of Look magazine. Robinson told Look, Pee Wee was, great, was great to me in 1948 when Eddie Stanky went to Boston Braves and I moved to second base. He took a lot of bitter abuse around the circuit because of it. Pee Wee comes from Louisville, Kentucky, and the bench jockeys kept asking him how it felt to be playing beside a Negro. The first day we played in Boston that spring, the Braves tried to give us a real bad time, but Pee Wee shut them up. He walked over to me and put his arm around me and talked to me in a friendly manner, smiling and laughing. There was no more trouble after that from the Braves. He did the same thing in other parks. 
Mark Reese, Pee Wee's son, said, My father had done his own soul searching, and he knew that some fans, teammates, and yes, some family members didn't want him to play with the black man. But my father listened to his heart and not to the chorus. He added that his father admired Robinson as a ball player and as a man. When a petition was passed around in the spring training by some Dodger players saying they would refuse to play with Robinson, Reese declined to sign it. And when the moment came for him to demonstrate his concern for a teammate in the most subtle but unmistakable fashion, he took it. The statue shows two players with Reese's arm around Robinson's shoulder. There is no photograph of the moment. Rachel Robinson said, I remember Jackie talking about Pee Wee's gesture the day it happened. It came as such a relief to him that a teammate and the captain of the team would go out of his way in such a public fashion to express friendship. In the biography, Jackie Robinson Robinson himself was quoted as recalling the incident this way. Pee-wee kind of sensed the sort of helpless, dead feeling in me and came over and stood beside me for a while. He didn't say a word, but he looked over at the chaps who were yelling at me and just stared. He was standing by me. I could tell you that. The hecklers ceased their attack. I will never forget it, Robinson said. Daddy Reese said, Pee-wee thought nothing of it. For him was a simple gesture of friendship. He had no idea that it would become so significant. He would be absolutely amazed. When asked later in 1997, Pee-wee Reese said this, Something in my gut reacted at the moment. Something about what? The unfairness of it? The injustice of it? I don't know. Unity is already given to us by God. Let's just be who we were created to be and do the things we were created to do.